You should see what's going on out there. It's mental. Um, this, is, this is incredible. Uh, thank you so much for coming. My name's Charlie Duncan Safri. Uh, I'm going to be hosting this. I'm also going to be hosting a concurrent show out there with the same philosophers who are going on in here. So this is an experiment. For those of you who like watching experiments, uh, you're going to love this. For those of you who like watching slick, well-put-together shows, it's, it's going to be interesting. So, um, so it's, Yes, and it's, it's free. So, hey, you can't complain. Um, so, uh, just to give you some background to this, um, my name is, is Charlie Safri. Uh, I've been simultaneously uh, a postgraduate philosophy student and a stand-up comedian for some time. Um, and since that's happened, uh, there's been this kind of thing that's, that's emerged out of it, which is called stand-up philosophy. Um, stand-up philosophy, uh, there's been a couple of experiments that we've tried. It's not that funny. Oh, sorry, you're right, sir. Good. Uh, there's been some experiments that we've tried uh, in little pubs and so on, but this is the first ever time it's been tried with actual professional philosophy academics. So this is going to be fascinating. Um, the rules are they don't necessarily have to do any jokes. They're just going to try and persuade you to say something interesting. Um, how it's going to work is each uh, philosopher is going to talk for about eight minutes on a particular topic. Uh, after that, you'll get an opportunity to ask questions, uh, and you can, you can really kind of push them on, on whatever you like. There are essentially uh, four rules um, for this, just to get it working. Uh, the first rule is you have to kind of let them, let them get, their, get their bit out. They'll talk about eight minutes if you let them get that bit out first. Um, the second rule is when we do get to questions... Um, you want to keep the questions short. Sometimes I've been in these kind of public events where someone asks a question and within 30 seconds everyone hates them. So, <laughs> so you have to keep the questions short if you're asking questions. The third question, uh, the third rule is um, when you're asking questions, try to avoid kind of uh, technical terms, excessive name dropping. We don't need to know that much about things uh, that the average uh, person here doesn't necessarily understand. I believe there's some A-level students in, so definitely don't be too technical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the fourth one is, don't be an ass. Uh, that's all of the rules. And with that, I'd like to welcome, welcome to the, the stage area um, the wonderful Simon Glendini, who's going to be talking about, well, uh, what was it, the, our, our time. Yeah. The, the weirdness of our time. The weirdness of our time. The weirdness of our time. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let's have a massive round of applause for the wonderful Simon Glendini. Somebody tweeted me a few minutes ago saying how many jokes would there be per philosopher and the only thing I could think of was that each one will be one. <laughs> and uh, that's the end of my jokes. Because I'm going to begin though with my question and it's uh, contained in a quotation from uh, Act 1, Scene 1 of a play by Shakespeare called Timon of Athens. And uh, in this scene a poet comes into a big house in Athens where uh, a guy is painting the house, a house painter's there. The house painter is really gloomy and the poet is a bit over-the-top excited. And so the poet bounds in and says, Good day, sir! And the painter says, I'm glad you're well. And uh, oh, I've seen, not seen you long. How goes the world? He said, hey, It wears, sir, as it grows. Aye, that's well known, says the poet. But what particular rarity, what strange which manifold record not matches... So he's asking here, you know, what's distinctive about this uh, wearing and growing world that the painter's living in? And I want to ask that about our time, about uh, how to conceive the distinctive character or the particular rarity of the world in our time. And the answer I'm going to give is that we're floundering, and I want to try and say a word or two about why it is that we might be floundering. 
I'm going to give a kind of indication of where we're getting up to with a quote from uh, British philosopher David Wiggins writing right at the end of the Cold War in the, in the, in the mid-1970s where he tries to give an, a, a kind of act one, scene one uh, articulation of our particular rarity. So here's, here's David Wiggins. Unless we are Marxists, we are more resistant today than the 18th or 19th centuries knew how to be to attempts to locate the meaning of human life or human history in mystical or metaphysical conceptions, in the emancipation of mankind or progress or the onward advance of absolute spirit. It's not that we've lost interest in emancipation or progress themselves, but whether temporarily or permanently, we have more or less abandoned the idea that the importance of emancipation or progress or a correct conception of spiritual advance is that these are the marks by which our minute speck in the universe can distinguish itself as the spiritual focus of the cosmos. Now, when Wiggins talks about this, about our, the changing world in our time, he says this is a time after Darwin. But this minute speck of the universe, this idea clearly indicates it's also a time after Copernicus. And since he says that the formation of our understanding of the world and the significance of our lives is to, to a large extent an unconscious development, it could even be said to be a time after Freud. And this triple, Copernicus, Darwin, Freud, and the way in which their transformations of our ways of thinking about our place in the universe have transformed the way we think about ourselves is uh, uh, really the theme of, that I want to talk about. And it was a theme that Freud himself took up more than once in lectures when he was giving, particularly when he gave public lectures about the reception of his own ideas. And he liked to consider this little telling triple, Copernicus, Darwin, Freud, and he saw it as telling a kind of story about blows, what he called, blo in, in, in the English translation, blows, uh, to what he called, the, or in English, called the self-love of man. So we have this kind of self-conception of our, of our being the centre of things. If you, th again, think of um, Wiggins saying that we, we think of ourselves as a spiritual centre of the cosmos, we have this, we've had this understanding of ourselves at the centre of things, but you have this series of blows. The Copernican blow. You're not the centre of the universe. You're just one planet amongst other planets in a whole universe without any particular significance. The Darwinian blow. You're not a special kind of um, uh, center of creation. You're just an animal amongst animals and you have an animal descent like any other animal. And the Freudian blow, Freud says, here, conscious motives are not the primary explanation of human behavior. In fact, it's just one kind of explanation among many and it's not even uh, especially important. Uh, mo most, most of the explanation of our behavior will be unconscious. And so he says, you're not even master in your own house. You know, you could understand that you, okay, I'm not the centre of the universe, the world's not the centre, or this animal's not so special, but, but still, as it were, we, we can command our own uh, destinies and so on. He's saying you're not even master in your own house. So you have that triple, the, the, uh, the three blows. And I want to ask about, what about today? Post-Cold War, after Wiggins, as it were, has talked about how it is for us these days. Well, in a little passage on a text uh, that was written about Marx, 
The French philosopher Jacques Derrida wondered in 1993, so now after the fall of the Berlin Wall, whether there may not be what he called an odd kind of fourth blow to add to the list. And he called it a blow more terrible than the rest because it's going to bring the other three together and in one fell swoop, as it were, just completely smash in to this self-understanding of ourselves at the centre. He called it the Marxist blow, or le coup marxiste, but not here in view of some kind of new scientific achievement, because that's the distinctive feature of the other three, as Copernicus, Darwin, Freud, they're all giving you a new way of thinking about what it is to be a human being that displaces and, and decenters us from a pr previous conception. The Marxist blow uh, is not a blow that takes place in the 19th century when Marx was writing, and indeed, of course, when Marx was writing, although he no, no longer had an idea of ourselves as having some uh, sort of cosmic destiny, he did think that uh, there was a direction of history towards some great human end. He was still yearning for that end of man. Uh, no, not Marx of the 19th century, but Marxism of the 20th century. And I'm going to read a quotation now from Derrida, which is the longest quote I've got. So this is Derrida. I, it's not too difficult, but it's not great easy either. <laughs> uh, there is a temptation to add here a, an apparatic postscript to Freud's remark that linked in the same comparative history three decentering blows inflicted on human self-love. The psychological trauma, the power of the unconscious over the conscious, after the biological trauma, the animal descent of man, after the cosmological trauma, the Copernican Earth is no longer at the centre of the universe, and this is more and more the case, one could say. Our aporia would stem here from the fact that the subject of the Marxist coup, the one who receives the blow, uh, can no longer be understood by the old name and the teleology of man. This teleology is this movement towards an end of man, some great uh, final end in which, as it were, everything comes together. The Marxist blow is as much the projected unity of a thought and the spontaneous movement of the industrial proletariat. So you've got this idea of this... Uh, um, uh, this project of a unity of Marxist science and the activity of, of labour, that th these will come together in some wonderful future moment. Uh, sometimes he says in a messianic form, something's coming, you know, communism is coming and so on. Uh, and it's as much that, as he says, as it is the history of the totalitarian world. So when we're, as it were, in, the, in, the, in our thinking, in the thinking about this projected unity to come of Marxist science and, 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 and the activity of labour, uh, when we're guided by that vision, the upshot is the history of the totalitarian world. And he says, including Nazism and fascism, which are the inseparable adversaries of Stalinism. He says, this is perhaps the deepest wound for mankind in the body of its history and the history of its concept, still more traumatising than the psychological blow produced by psychoanalysis, the third and most serious in Freud's view. For we know that the blow struck in the name of Marx also accumulates and gathers together the other three. It carries beyond them by carrying them out, just as it bears the name of Marx by exceeding it. The century of Marxism, the 20th century, will have been that of a, the techno-scientific, effective decentering of the earth, of geopolitics, of the anthropos in its ontotheological identity, and of the ego cogito. The, this ontotheological identity is this idea of man as, first of all, the, uh, the 
on, the onto part is the Greek idea of that we're the rational animal, and the theological part is the Christian idea of that we're made in God's image. This conception of ourselves being absolutely blown apart, says Derrida, suggests Derrida. So the terms through which we've understood ourselves and understood the significance of man and the significance of our lives, of course, is being blown apart or blown away. Derrida's friend Emmanuel Levinas put it like this, the noble hope of Marxism consisted in healing everything, in installing beyond the chance of individual charity a regime without evil. That would be the, the proper end of man on all of these historical conceptions of uh, historical emancipation of, of, of man and so on. A regime without evil. And the regime of charity becomes Stalinism and complicitous Hitlerian horror. So you have these great discourses of man going back some 2,000 years, all focused on this idea of a special end of man and a special significance of man, which would give it this sort of uh, special place in, in, in the universe. And today, if those discourses on man have been shattered, if they're exhausted, if they're finished, then we are floundering. Floundering in a world which, as Derrida puts it, is more and more Copernican than ever. More and more, of course, it's a globalized world, a, a globalization virtually completed. As Paul Valery said, there's not a rock without a flag. This little planet is no longer a special place. It's just one planet amongst planets, and more and more so for us living in our time. Completed without end. <clears throat> and yet, to give a sign, kind of hopefully happy ending... Um, Wiggins, in the quote that I began with, he noted that in his invocation of our time, he says, it's not that we have lost interest in emancipation or progress themselves. And Derrida, too, wants to conclude with that positive thought that even without that sort of grand self-understanding of the human, perhaps there's a, a, a new point of departure in the displacement of that old conception. Derrida says, there where a certain determined concept of man is finished, there the humanity of man, of the other man, and of man as other, as other to another animal, for example, begins, or has finally the chance of heralding itself or promising itself. So it's towards, this movement now is not towards a final end of man, but towards an understanding of ourselves more in keeping with the blows, more humble as it were, but being now towards, still towards, we're still floundering, towards uh, um, a, 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 an understanding of ourselves without a telos. That's it. Sounds good, it? Thank you very much. We have, we have two minutes for questions. Um, yes, sir. What, what's your name? Oh, hey, Christos. Sorry, I didn't say I had the light in my eyes. Hi there. Um, Christos, uh, would you like to, uh, to ask Professor Glenn any question? Question. Uh, you, you've cho carefully chosen three thinkers that the blows can be incorporated into something optimistic. How about Schopenhauer? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Schopenhauer was the prince How of pessimism. How about Schopenhauer? <laughs> yeah. Like, he dealt with the most severe blow, like... Uh, the wisdom of silence. Yes, but the thing about Schopenhauer is that, and except for about ten people, nobody's read him. So <laughs> the blow was not widely felt. Whereas Derrida, fine. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, yes, madam. Uh, what's, uh, what's your name? Sorry. Uh, Wendy. Wendy. Hello, Wendy. What's, what's your question?
No, not quite. It is still projecting towards the future, but now no longer thought through the idea that there's some special ideal end that we're all heading towards. We have to think about our relationship to the future otherwise than heading towards our special end. Yes, I like that idea. In fact, in Derrida's quote, he says, uh, um, uh, the humanity of man, of the other man. So you remember all all of these discourses, they were also, I didn't mention this, they were all European, right? These were Europeans. It wasn't just like man looking at himself and saying, wow, aren't I great? It was Europeans in the times of science saying, look at at me, look at me. That's that's the (laughs) man and his self-love, his European man. So Derrida is here emphasising the other man, and he's emphasised the man as other. We are not even the centre of any... You know, we, we are a being that rela- exists in a relation to other animals as well. OK. Uh, what was your name, madam? Uh, Dorothy. Hi, Dorothy. Hi. Uh, what's your question? This sounds very million. It's sort of... Uh, I wrote about his comparison to each other, sort of saying that we can only merit success and genius and all the things that he talks about against one another and the notion of tyranny of perfection... And the fact that there isn't such thing, and right. that's the point of life, is progress eternal. Right, excellent. So, so one, of the thing, and think one of the things that's really central in Mill is the idea of replacing this idea of the perfection of man with experiments in living. And experiments in living has to leave opportunities for every other to have their experiment in living too. One of the other sort of desperate failures, as it were, of the classic discourses of the end of man, it's one end. We're all going to the same place because essentially, you know, we are all creatures of God or or we're all uh, rational creatures or whatever it is. So there was one proper way of being a human being and that we would all finally get there. In Mill, instead, when you give up on that sort of idea, you have to make room for experiments in living. Yes, very good. No, absolutely. Good. Nietzsche, too, he, he resists the common, you know, everything that would make us the same. No, what's unique about us is that each one is other. Song Glendinning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Okay, uh, so uh, if you could get ready to go on in the next room. (laughs) Um, uh, And uh, just incidentally, while while Christina's uh, setting up her slide... um, does anyone know what the correct word is for, uh, for if there was a school of thought that followed John Stuart Mill? Is it million or is it millite? Million. You, you're going for million. I've always, I've always wondered, because million sounds like the word million, and it's confusing. <laughs> but I love John Stuart Mill. I always want to say, oh, is it, I want to say million, but is, is it right? So should we take a show of hands? Who's up for million? Who prefers millite? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's no help at all. That's... Uh, Almost exactly 50-50. Who doesn't care? <laughs> that's, a, that's, another, that's the final third. <laughs> We're in trouble. Um, so, m- what, sorry? We could say millarians. Mil- millarians? <laughs> <laughs> or we could say millarians. <laughs> um, okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to hand over to Christina Washolt, who I believe is going to talk about herself. Round of applause for the wonderful Christina Washolt. So I think 
we're going to go from high culture to low culture now. And basically what I want to do is not really give, us, give you an argument or a specific position that I want to defend, but rather present you with a question, because I think that a lot of good philosophy actually consists in asking questions, and in particular in maybe questioning the obvious or questioning what we usually take for granted. And so my question for today for you is how many yous are you, or maybe slightly put differently, how many selves do you have or are you? And you might think, well, that's a silly question. That's kind of obvious, right? So I'm one person, right? I'm one individual in this world. So there's one me, there's one you, right? Um, but this is exactly, I think, what I want to call into question. So I think uh, there's this common sense view that there's one you, right? And also in philosophy, often there's this view that there's one self, and there's different theories of how that is. Some people talk about the narrative self, right? So there's this sort of one story that we tell about ourselves continuously. And obviously that's kind of important too for legal and moral reasons, right? Because if you were different persons all the time, then uh, the person that you are, to, if you were changing from today to tomorrow, for example, you might not be responsible anymore tomorrow for what you did today, right? So, so we'd have, like, lots of problems if we were trying to catch, catch criminals. But nonetheless, I think this issue is maybe not as obvious as you might think. And so um, the way in which I'm going to illustrate this is by uh, using one of uh, the philosopher's most favorite devices, namely the thought experiment. Uh, thought experiments have, have gotten a bit of a bad reputation lately, uh, and maybe rightly so, but I read a Slate article the other day, and it said, well, look, philosophy has an image problem, and uh, if you really want to sort of market philosophy and you want to bring philosophy back, you need to own the thought experiment, okay? So I'm going to go for that. <laughs> I'm going to try to own the thought experiment. And in particular, I want to ask you, well, what if you could make copies of yourself? So we have 3D printers now, right? So recently there was quite a lot of discussion because people were making functional guns from 3D printers, printers that you can actually buy now for yourself at home, right? Okay, so maybe there's a big step from making a 3D copy, a functioning copy of a gun to making a 3D copy of a human being, but maybe the stretch is not, not too far. Um, but actually I don't want to just want to rely on my imagination here. Rather, um, I want to use someone else to illustrate this thought experiment further, namely David Brin. I don't know, is anyone familiar with this sci-fi novel by David Brin? So sci-fi is a great way of doing philosophy, actually. Also notice it makes philosophy a really great profession because you can pass off almost anything as doing work, right? So I'm reading a sci-fi <laughs> novel and that's work, okay? So, uh, so David Brin has this, has this no sci-fi novel called The Kiln People and his idea is that, well, take this idea of, of a golem, right, which is a temporary clay figure, and imagine now that you have something like this 3D printer at home and you can just make copies of yourself, golems of yourself, clay figures of yourself that exist for roughly a day and you can send them off and, and do all the kind of things that you don't feel like doing. So you make a copy to run your errands, you make a copy to clean your house, you make a copy to mark your students' exam papers. Um, you know, you might, and if you go off on a, con and there's different sort of copies, so different types of copies in his novel that you can make. So there's a green type, which is not so smart, but very good at sort of physical stuff. Uh, and then there's a smarter copy that you can do to do your, like, office job. Uh, there's also pleasure copies, all kinds of different uh, sort of things. So, you know, if you're going off on a conference, you leave a copy for your partner. And are you cheating on yourself when you're doing that? Well, it raises all kinds of questions, right? So the question is, are these copies you? Or are there something different? So who thinks that the copies are you? Okay, few people. Who thinks they're not you? 
most people, okay, some undecided. Why not? Is it just, so why, why is it that they're not you? Is it because they're physically different because they only live for a day? Or is it, what's the characteristics here that, that are important? Yeah. Okay, but why does it, oh, I'm, I forgot to mention maybe, that, that should maybe change uh, your view, perhaps. <laughs> so the idea is that um, you upload your complete memory, your complete life experience to that copy as well, right? So you create the copy and the, the copy has all your memories. The trick is, though, at the end of the day, you can decide whether you want to re-upload the memory. So if your copy had a really shitty day, you can say, nah, you know, don't really want that. Um, but if they had a really great day, then you, you can choose to have those memories. So do you still then think that there's something special about the original? Yeah, so maybe it's more the original has the power to get rid of stuff. Okay, so there's some power relationship maybe going on there. Okay, so I, th I think there's different ways in which you could think that maybe the copies are different, right? So maybe physically they're slightly different. Maybe also because I said there's these different copies who do different things, right? That there's different characteristics, as it were, of you that are more or less strongly expressed in each of these copies, right? So some have your intellectual skills and some have your physical skills and some are, like, really focused, right, in the way that you are only very rarely, something like that, right? But, uh, so no, now you might ask yourself, well, why, how is this relevant, relevant to us? Okay, so leave aside the issue of, of making copies, right, even though, well, we don't know whether we're going to get there at some point. Uh, at this point, we can't make copies. But what I want to suggest now is that maybe if you leave aside this issue of making copies... There is, a, there is a sense in which you can be different people, too, at different times, right? So, for example, think about whether you are the same person before and after your morning coffee. Or are you the same person when you're really tired and exhausted or when you're really kind of after a good night's sleep? Or, you know, are you the same person... Maybe you're really driven and you want to study for this exam, but you're also feeling really, really tired, so you take some modafinil to, to keep you up all night to be able to study for the exam. So who's the real self then? The person who was really tired before or the person who's now on modafinil? Uh, also, think about people perhaps with mental illnesses. If you're manic depressive, um, is the person in a manic state the same person as the, as the person in a depressive phase? Or is the, and who's the real one? If, if one is the original, so you said maybe in, in the copy case we have an original and we have copies, right? But what about the manic depressive? Do we have an original? And then a non-original, or are they both equally uh, sort of valid? Oh no, that's not mine. I turned it off. That's not mine. Um, or is the person who's taking the drugs maybe to stabilize their mood? Is that the real one, right? Um, so basically, what I want to suggest is that it's not always that easy to tell, you know, particularly when you think of new developments to neuroenhancements. Of course, new enhancements aren't going to necessarily enable you to make a copy of yourself, but they might be able to, for instance, keep your attention really focused when it normally wouldn't be, like the ebony copy in the novel is a really focused copy. That's an aspect of you. You can be focused sometimes, but usually you're not focused for the whole 24 hours, but if you take this drug, maybe you can be. Or memories. You choose not to upload the bad memory of one of your copies. Well, there's now drugs that can selectively um, target memories. So when people suffer from post-traumatic stress disorders, for example, they can choose to get rid of these memories in a sense. Um, so I think that there's ways in which you can think about the self that make it sort of less obvious whether you're really just one person. In a sense, historically, there's only 
given that we can't make copies one person that's numerically identical with yourself, but the way in which you experience yourself or the way in which different characteristics of your personality come out at different times, you might actually be different selves, right? And that in, in turn has really interesting implications on the one hand for how do you think about yourself? You know, are you the same person now as you were as a child? Are you going to be the same person in 10 years after you've made a whole lot of other experiences? What does that then mean for your responsibility about what you did 10 years ago? Or, you know, what, what does it also mean if there's like different personalities maybe within you, like one really tired, and, but also the one that really wants to study? You know, how's that relation between those two aspects of you going to play out? What kind of responsibility do you maybe have for that person? So in the, in the Kill novel, you know, these, these copies don't have any human rights. They just go and do the dirty work, and then they're destroyed at the end of the day, and they don't have any rights to be treated well. But, you know, if you may be different people within yourself, do you have responsibility towards your different selves? So basically, that's just, um, yeah, hopefully uh, something to make you think about the way we can think about the selves and... and maybe make intuitive the idea, the idea that it's not so straightforward and also that this has potentially quite interesting implications depending on how, um, how you think this plays out. If I could make a copy of myself, yeah. would that mean that I could be doing both of these shows at the same exactly, time? Exactly, yes. Be that, that would be great. Did you already say that? No, I didn't. Ah, <laughs> I didn't, actually. I, I missed the possible opportunity. Oh, yeah, that's okay. true. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just ladies and gentlemen. Who's got questions? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, with a floppy pair. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking pretty floppy to me. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it. Uh, what's your question? I had a question for you. Earlier on, you asked your audience whether we thought it was, uh, the, the copy was either you, not you, or decided. However, also in my position is that it is both you and not you at the same time, concomitantly. Yeah, very good. What are your thoughts on that, potentially? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting answer, right? And I think it actually um, is an answer that some philosophers would also give. So one, one friend of mine, Owen Flanagan, who's a philosopher of mine, he says, well, there's different ways of thinking about the self. So we can distinguish between the historical self, which is identical with you, uh, but we can also think about the phenomenal self, the way that you experience yourself. And so in one sense, you are still the same person that you were 10 years ago. But in another sense, you might not be the same person that you were 10 years ago. That, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was more sort of interested in the, in the way you experience yourself because he thinks that's crucial um, to who you are and who you identify with. But you could bring that into play as well. So in that sense, there might be a yes and a no answer to that question, right? Yeah. Um, yes, sir. Surely the, the test of whether, whether the person is the same person is whether, the, whether a anybody can reflect on what, what he is. So if he were reflecting what he was, um, some, the, one of the copies who was reflecting what he was will be a different self. Sorry, so again, when, when if, if somebody was a different person, yeah. uh, they reflect on who they are. Well, they yeah. And, and self-reflection is what makes them a person. Yeah. yeah. Right. So you can um, actually see you were the same person. Yeah. Someone else would, would be a different person because he would be a Because the copy would reflect but the copy, a But the copy would still have the same memories, right? And also the same way of thinking in some way. So if you read the novel, the copies go through the day and they think about their past just like you would and they make plans for the day, like what do I, and, you know, what do I feel like doing and so on. I mean, the whole point of this is that even if you self-reflect, 
there's a sense in which you can say, yes, I'm the same person I was 20 years ago. I have these autobiographical memories. They clearly have this autobiographical tint. I remember that I, that I did this. But in some sense, I still don't quite identify with that person anymore. I wouldn't do that anymore now, and I don't really feel like the same person anymore. And I think what we should maybe allow is to open up a way in which both of these statements can be true. So it doesn't have to be either or. Uh, the lady with glasses over there. Just wearing another fucking culture reference. At the end of the Matrix, they have all the Agent Smiths. You still knew which was the real one, didn't you? So I think there possibly still is only one. Yeah. The Matrix, the, yeah. the film known by all philosophy teachers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, I think um, exactly what I'm watching movies is also doing philosophy. It's, yeah, I tell you, it's the greatest job in the world. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess we are very much tied to this idea that it has to be one true self, right? Um, but what some people like Owen suggests is that that's partly because our society constructs it in that way, because the one true, there being one true self is so important for our legal context, for our moral context, for the way in which we interact with each other. But he suggests that it's not always true to the way we actually experience ourselves. And not all of us have this, maybe some of us do, but maybe some of us don't have this really coherent experience that we're always the same person. And maybe it's kind of liberating to think that I don't actually have to be always the same person. I, I can actually change and I can become a different person. Uh, there's a couple of hands going up. Chris, I think you have the, the, your hand up first, but this is going to have to be the last one. I'm sure you'll get more chances to ask questions. Chris, go quick. Uh, in existentialism, we, we generally distinguish between individuals by virtue of the inexchangeability of death. If I'm the only one who can ex uh, experience my own death, and that's, that's it. But if you get a new idea that I've never thought that if I make a copy of myself and I let my copy uh, have sex with my uh, partner, uh, actually, uh, a new way of differentiating myself is like, if I'm not the one having the organ, then it's not me. <laughs> Even if you uploaded the experience after, the, the memory of it after? But it's not the same, it's an experience, it's a memory of the organ, but it's yeah. the organ's happening. True, <laughs> true. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's really good that you bring up that point, because this case really raises all kinds of interesting issues, right? Yes, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we're not here to talk about orgasms, what are you? Ladies and gentlemen, Christina Mossel. Okay. Um, I think we're going to have to move fairly swiftly on uh, because I have to go into the other room uh, and interrupt Simon Glendinning again. So, um, so without further ado, I'd like to get a massive round of applause uh, for the one with Lawrence Goldstein. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. I'm going to talk to you about uh, paradoxes, just for something completely different. And paradoxes are regarded as uh, the sharp end or the deep end of uh, philosophy um, a paradox, for those who don't know, is an argument that starts off with uh, premises that seem indubitably true and leads generally uh, in a few short steps to a conclusion that's, uh, that's uh, contradictory or crazy in some other way. Um, perhaps the most famous ancient paradox is the liar, where you have someone who says, what I'm now saying is false. And then, of course, it's got to be either true or false what they say. If it's true, then what they're saying is false, so it's false. And if it's false, when they're saying it's false, so it's true. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> now, um, what I want to argue in the next ten minutes or less is that paradoxes are fun and are not as difficult as many people think. And this is going to involve a little bit of uh, self-analysis. Often at parties, um, some people will uh, corner me and ask what makes philosophy absolutely absorbing or why in particular I find paradoxes so fascinating. Anomaly... I'll say anything that will get me out of the corner as quickly as possible. 
Um, but right now I'd like to take the question seriously because, after all, it is a striking fact that some philosophers are interested in a certain topic um, and find topics in philosophy, other topics, are boring or, you know, even um, repulsive. Um, I th I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, phenomenon. Many analytic philosophers think that uh, continental philosophers are obscurantist charlatans, and conversely, um, continentalists uh, think it's no coincidence that the word analytic belong, uh, begins with anal. Um, a philosopher working in logic might be the type of person who wants results quickly, bang, 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 and so he may be temperamentally unsuited to ethics, where after 2,000 years of talking, um, there's no solid good answer. There's not even any agreement on what the word good means. So... Different temperaments, different interests in philosophy. So what is it with me and paradoxes? Well, um, Wittgenstein, who's my main man, um, he had a very poor sense of humour, unfortunately. In fact, I know of only one joke of his that's genuinely funny, and I'm actually going to have to try and embellish it a bit to make it even <laughs> a bit more, more funny. Um, it, it, it comes from a lecture that he, he once gave where he talked of, a, of uh, coming across a man who was uh, panting and out of breath. And this guy gasps out some numbers. He says, five, six, two, nine, five, one, four, one, three. And then he stops. And you ask him what the hell he's doing. And regaining his breath, he tells you that he's just finished reciting backwards the decimal expansion of pi. Now, see, there's no mathematicians here. <laughs> Those who got beyond elementary maths would find this funny. And why? Well... <laughs> Pi is an irrational number. That means it can't be expressed in the form m over n, in particular where m and n are integers. In fact, um, it can't be expressed in the form n over 10. So the decimal expansion of pi just goes on forever and ever. Uh, you never get to the end, and because there's no end, it means also that there's no beginning where this panting man could have started. So there's a contradiction between that and what he claims to have done, namely started at the, uh, at the end of the expansion of pi and just finished reciting to the beginning. Well, as you can see, the, the, the joke is funny, believe it or not, <laughs> um, because there's a contradiction, and it's a contradiction that lies well below the surface and is visible, as we've seen, only to the mathematically sophisticated. <laughs> so, so here's a strange fact. A straight contradiction, like, um, it's raining and it's not raining, grass is green, grass is not green, isn't funny at all. And it seems that a contradiction is funny only if it's disguised. So a little bit of autobiography. Before I became a philosopher, I considered various possible occupations. I could have been a boxer like my father. He could have been a boxer too. <laughs> oh, good. He got that one. <laughs> OK. Now, see... You, you laughed at that, which is, uh, which is good. You're supposed to laugh at the previous one, but never mind. <laughs> why is it funny? Well, most people can't analyse why it's funny, and I, but I'll tell you why. The first clause, I could have been a boxer like my father, presupposes that my dad was a boxer. And the second clause presupposes the opposite, because the counterfactual, he could have been a boxer, implies that he wasn't one. So again, we've got a disguised contradiction. And contradictions are not ordinary false statements. Um, they're absurd or nonsensical, and the nonsensical provides welcome and gratifying relief from the quotidian. I remember when I was about six years old um, hearing this riddle at school. 
Um, probably a lot of you are familiar with it. What's the similarity? So if you are, shout out the answer. What's the similarity between grass and monkeys? Okay, yeah. <laughs> they're both green, except monkeys. Right? Now, oddly enough, I, I still find this amusing, even though the contradiction is very near the surface. Um, the punchline, if one can call it that, says that grass and monkeys are green and that monkeys are not green. So, <clears throat> but what's all that got to do with paradoxes? Well, take the paradox of the stone, so there's a genuine paradox. Here we're asked to consider this sentence, so listen carefully to this sentence. A God who is omnipotent can create a stone so heavy that he can't lift it. Right? God who is omnipotent can create a stone so heavy that he can't lift it. So if that sentence is true, it's got to be either true or false. If the sentence is true, then there's something that God can't do, namely lift a stone. If it's false, then there's something that God can't do, namely create it. So either way, this being um, can't do everything, is not omnipotent, but because omnipotence is a defining characteristic of God, that proves uh, that God doesn't exist. Um, now, the paradox is that a momentous result such as that God doesn't exist, would take a hell of a lot of proving. And yet we seem to have proved it on the cheap in a few words. <laughs> right? Unless someone thinks it's a good argument and is convinced, and they're going to give up all their religious be beliefs right now. <laughs> um, now, if we look carefully, we can see that this so-called proof of God's non-existence is just as nonsensical as our monkeys and grass joke. Because our original sentence was a thinly disguised contradiction. It says that God is omnipotent, in other words, can do everything. But in the next breath, it says that there's something that he can't do, namely lift a stone. So our starting premise was contradictory. And a contradiction conveys no information, so no information can be derived from it. In particular, we can't derive the non-existence of God. Paradox solved. Paradox is solved if you can show that it starts with a contradiction, even if it's a hidden one, uh, for then it's no surprise that it ends with one. So once you get the hang of seeing that a joke you like can be funny because of underlying contradiction or nonsensicality, it's often possible to relate it to a paradox, if you've got a budget of paradoxes in your mind. For example, a little girl says to you, uh, Mummy, help me feed carrots to the donkeys, but I fed the lion myself. I'll repeat that. <laughs> Mummy, help me feed carrots to the donkeys, but I fed the lions myself. Okay, that's absurd. She might have fed the lions some hunks of raw meat, but had she fed the lions herself, in other words, fed herself to the lions, she wouldn't be alive to tell the story. So there's a contradiction between what she says and the fact that she's alive to say it. So compare that with the version of the liar paradox that I told you about at the beginning, in which Epimenides, who's a Cretan, tells St Paul that all Cretans lie all of the time. There's nothing problematic if what he says is about other Cretans or even about some of his other statements. Um, but if it's also about the very utterance that he's making, then he's in effect asserting that what he's now saying is not true. But to assert a proposition is to acknowledge it as true. Yet what he's asserting is that that proposition is not true. 
In other words, he'd be simultaneously asserting what he's denying. And that's an impossibility. So Epimenides succeeds in uttering a sentence, that's okay, but he fails to make an assertion. The difference is that you, or a parrot, or a computer, uh, can utter a sentence, but that's quite different from uttering a sentence with the intention of saying something true. As Wittgenstein says, if you exclude the element of intention from language, its whole function then collapses. The um, Canadian comedian uh, Steve Wright says that he went to the store to buy some batteries, but they weren't included. Uh, of course, that only got a mild laugh, so I'm going to have to analyse that joke and thereby kill it. Um, the reference he's making is to a message that you often get in stores where you buy electrical items. It says in the window, batteries not included. right? But of course, batteries are themselves electrical items, so you buy a battery, but you don't buy one since no battery is included in your purchase. There's a contradiction. And this joke is a nice variant of Russell's paradox. Um, some sets, members of themselves, others are not. Only and all the latter are members of the Russell set, so the Russell set is a member of itself, if and only if it isn't. Contradiction. So that's thought to be a very deep and complicated paradox, but as you can see, it's directly related to that Steve Wright joke. The other day I heard Michael McIntyre. Um, he's, he's good, isn't he? Where's Charlie? Would, uh, I <laughs> he was talking about people stuck stationary in a traffic jam on the motorway. Um, usually, usually it's caused by an accident, and the accident's too far ahead um, to see anything. And if you can't see anything now, you're not going to see anything a second later. So you might well stay sitting in your car. You might, I mean, nothing, you're not going to profit by getting out of your car. But you see drivers, and at some point they do get out of the car, and the passenger asks, can you see anything? And inevitably answers, no, I can't see anything. Right? So the driver knows that the seeing situation is not going to change from one second to the next. Yet, in contradiction of that insight, at some point he jumps out of the car to see what he can see. We might call this a Sorites situation after the ancient paradox of the heap. You start in that paradox, you start with a large pile of grains of wheat. Everybody would say it's a heap. You remove one grain, obviously it's still a heap. Remove another grain, it's still a heap, and so on. In fact, so long as you have a heap, the removal of further grain is not going to change it into a non-heap. But that means that if you keep removing grains one by one, you'll always be left with a heap. But, of course, by the, by the time you're down to four grains and three grains, two grains and one grain... Um, it would follow that you still have a heap. And this contradicts the obvious fact that you don't. Okay, well, I could give lots more examples, but I hope I've done something to explain why I'm attracted to paradoxes. It's nothing very lofty, I'm afraid. It's just that paradoxes are often closely related to, to jokes, and I like a good laugh. Nonsense! <laughs> Um, the question about grains of rice, of course, uh, and whether it's still a heap, uh, is that if it's replacing grains of rice with bodies, four arguably still is a heap of bodies. Isn't it? 
Never, ever make jokes about bodies again. <laughs> right. Um, who's got questions for Lawrence? <laughs> there must be a question. No questions about the question. Or give me a, give me a joke, anything. Has anyone, has anyone got a joke that, uh, that Lawrence can analyse to death? Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, Simon, yes. I had a child, actually, who, uh, who disagreed with everything, and I said to him, are you going through a negative phase? And uh, that stumped him. He couldn't say no. So, uh, <laughs> Yes, sir? I've got a joke for you. Okay. Um, did you hear that Craig David is going to take part in the uh, Commonwealth Games next year? Craig David, who's she? <laughs> <laughs> nice I wish I knew who Craig, Craig Davis was. <laughs> the, 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 bow, the bow selector. Right, Craig right. David will be the bow selector. The, um, oh, okay. Because he had a song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, madam. They definitely are getting worse. <laughs> uh, analysis, Lawrence? <laughs> or is this just becoming a joke fest? It, 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 it seems to be. Oh, let's, yeah. uh, let's go with your, your jokes. And they're right. If we start getting everyone just telling a joke, this is going to turn into carnage. So, uh, so uh, last joke from you, and then we'll have like, jokes throughout from, uh, between, uh, between the philosophers when there's no points to make. Uh, yes, sir? Okay. Do you want to analyse that joke? No, I, I, don't, I don't understand it, so I, I can't... Who's Wendy? Where, yeah, who's, who's Wendy? She went... Oh, OK. Well, yours got a bigger laugh than mine did. So, uh, so well done. Um, OK, last one. Yes, sir. Are there any paradoxes in modern politics? Well, it is a, well there's, there's a, a paradox of, uh, of democracy that you're probably familiar with. But I, here's a strange, a strange thing. Um, I've never voted Conservative or had anything to do with, uh, with Conservatives, and I think that these people are born evil. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> and yet I listened to uh, Michael Gove talking about revising the curriculum and making kids learn a foreign language. And I found myself lapping it up and agreeing with him and thinking that if he was, my, if he was standing in my constituency, I'd vote for him. So, I mean, it's a very sad confession, I know, but, <clears throat> and it is a paradox, and if you can help me out of it, I'll be very grateful. <laughs> well, I mean, we can think of an obvious way of helping you out, uh, which is uh, don't vote for Michael Gove. <laughs>
<laughs> um, right, okay, let's stop. Uh, Lawrence Goldstein, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and in relation to, to the question about whether there's any paradoxes in modern politics, uh, we'd like to welcome a philosopher from the Department of Government and Politics. Um, please welcome uh, the wonderful Lee Upi. Okay, so I'm going to present an argument from a philosopher who is famous for the destructive jokes, bordering sarcasm, actually. And that's not me, so that's the first cue. <laughs> what is the second cue? So it's a, he mentioned, I'm a political philosopher. So do you know any political philosopher who is famous for the destructive jokes and the sarcasm? So, okay, so Zizek is okay. This is even better. Okay, so here's another cue. This philosopher was actually never a professional philosopher. He never managed to get a job in a philosophy department. He was kicked out of a lot of countries and he spent his time saying something about philosophy, which is quite compatible with the frustrations that he had built through his academic career. Anyone can guess that? A very famous philosopher who was actually never a professionally employed philosopher, who was actually... Socrates is a good one. This is a bit later. He was, not, he was all right, but he wasn't destructive. So I'm talking about a philosopher who was making destructive jokes. He wanted to destroy something. And Okay, good, Marx, right. So I'm going to give you an argument from Marx on the role of philosophy. And as I said, the argument makes a lot of sense because it's, um, well, it's about what philosophers should and shouldn't do. And it makes a lot of sense because it says something that's compatible with him being frustrated and not having gotten a job, though that's only... Part of the explanation. So what's that argument? Does anyone... It's quite a famous sentence from Marx. It's sometimes often referred to also as Thesis 11, probably because it's in a book about religion and he didn't... You know, there's Ten Commandments and he had the Thesis 11, so... Um. Okay, yep. So philosophers have so far only interpreted the world and the point is now to change it. Okay, good. So what I want to try and do with you now is see if we can uh, reconstruct what this means and give some kind of rationale for why Marx thought that. Um, so what does it mean for philosophers to interpret the world? What do philosophers do? What is the point of philosophy? Quite apart from Marx, right? Just generally, what is the point of philosophy? To do what? <laughs> say again, say again. Sorry, I didn't hear that. To do what? That's what Marx would have said. But I said, you have to say something that Marx would not have said, and just more general, in a less cynical view. I, I will do that as well in a minute. But, uh, so, so what is, uh, so what's, why do people philosophize? What's the point of, okay, good. So we want to get to the truth of the world, let's say. And uh, what are the conditions of finding the truth? Under what conditions? What do we need to find the truth? Okay, yeah, that's quite abstract, premises, but more basic than that. Objectivity. Say again? Objectivity. Okay, objectivity, also fine, but very abstract, so more, more basic than that. Before we get to the premises and the good questions, very abstract still. Rationality, also very abstract. What do people do in the morning when you get up? Okay, good, so you have breakfast, so you need to eat, right? 
What else do you do? No, I don't mean like this. I mean very, very basic things. You realize the world is there. You open your eyes and you realize the world's there and you're there. Yeah, good, but what are, under what conditions do you do all these things? Someone was mentioning having breakfast, which is quite compatible. Okay, so you, you guys have, you're such kind of natural born philosophers. I'm, I'm asking about really, 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 really basic things like. Um, basic needs, you mean. Okay, good. So basic needs. What are the basic needs? Uh, eating, breathing, breathing. Breathing, yeah. What else? Shelter. Needs, satisfying needs. Great. Okay, so Marx thinks that we can't really philosophize. Well, that one of the preconditions, one of the very important preconditions of uh, philosophizing is actually to satisfy needs, right? Basic needs. So he thinks there's this immediate needs that people come from the animal world and we have these basic immediate needs that we share with animals, like uh, you mentioned eating, drinking, sleeping, um, sex. Mm, what else? Recreation, break, having a break, and so on and so forth. So these are the kind of primary needs, right? Now Marx thinks that in the course of satisfying these primary needs, we develop secondary needs. Okay? So um, let me give you an example of a very of a basic need, right? So let's say someone mentioned the need for love, the need to have partners, um, the need to to breathe and procreate which uh, naturally links with the need to cheat sometimes. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not defending, I'm not defending cheating, okay? I'm not, uh, it's not a normative argument. I'm just, saying, it's just an I'm just giving you a description, an explanation. Okay, good. Now, uh, so the need to cheat um, develops a secondary need, which is the need for a tool that allows you to cheat, right? And uh, has anyone actually cheated in this room? <laughs> Okay, let me ask a more... Okay, 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 a different question. Has anyone ever thought about cheating? Define cheating. Okay, good. Someone thought about... Okay, good. So, uh, so if you were to think about cheating, the kind of thing that you would need is a tool that allows you to cheat, right? Like, um, I don't know. What would be a tool that allows you to cheat? Alcohol. Okay, good. Alcohol. What else? Suppose you're past the first stage, right? So you're in the communication stage. What do you need? <laughs> okay, well, that's part of the basic needs, right? That's part of the primary needs. We're past that. We're now on to the more... <laughs> this is very abstract. What you need typically is something like, I don't know, a mailbox, a mobile phone, um, something that allows you to establish communication, right? Okay, so the basic need to cheat, let's say, is linked to the development of a secondary need, which is the need for tools that allow you to satisfy the basic need. And so a mobile phone, for example, or an iPhone, is a kind of secondary tool that allows you to satisfy a primary need. And so what you will need is both the, so what you will have is both the, some people that will allow you to satisfy your need to cheat. So there will be a, a labor force, let's say, or a, a human being, and then there will be some instruments through which labor is realized, right? So there will be like a phone, for example. So this is uh, Marx's conception of history starts with this idea that people have very simple needs and then they develop these needs and they, these needs link, into, uh, link and develop into more complex needs and trigger secondary needs that are also then developed into tertiary needs. And so the whole world of needs is more, becomes more and more complex and more and more difficult to satisfy in a way, right? 
And uh, what Marx says is that uh, what there is in every society, and you could understand this process of satisfaction of needs through labor and so on, by uh, looking at first, as I said, the human power, so the capacity of humans to satisfy each other's needs, but also to the tools of production. And so what you have is basically what Marx calls forces of production, which is labor power and instruments that allow you to realize that labor power. And then what he calls the um, relations of production. Now, what are relations of production? Don't think about cheating. Think about Marx and <laughs> more generally. What are relations of production? What is the sphere of relations of production? Yeah, good. So one, one example is power structures. Basically, the relations of production for Marx is everything that has to do with the sphere in which these forces of production develop this their reciprocal relation. And so the economy, typical economical structure, is what, what Marx would call a relation of production. And the economy, in order to work, will require things like um, laws, states that guarantees, property, and so on and so forth. So from the uh, establishment of a certain relation of production will follow the establishment also of a superstructure that allows that relation of production to work. So Marx's theory is that basically in every society the relationship between the tools and the instruments that are there and the reciprocal relationship between human beings are different. And so in feudal society, for example, you have particular relations of production that match, that allow the development of particular productive forces. And in capitalist society, it's different. So, for example, Marx says in feudal society, what you have is the guild structure. You don't have capital markets. You don't have the kind of open global uh, world that we're familiar with. But we have something much different. We have apprenticeships, and people develop their skills in apprenticeships and so on. And Marx's theory is that basically, if we look at human history, we realize that there is progress from, from one stage to the other. And that progress is triggered by crisis in the way in which relations of production respond to the development of productive forces. And so the idea is, for example, that in slave society, where people have to sell their labor power, at some point the development of productive forces is fettered by the production relations, in other words, by laws that support slavery. And so what you'd need is a transition to a, to a different sister that does away with slavery. And Marx's claim is, you probably all know, that um, in capitalism there is a certain relationship between certain conflict, conflictual relationship between certain productive forces and certain relations of production, that is to say between the productive forces that are workers and capitalists and the market, the capitalist market as that which allows these productive forces to work and on the other hand um, capitalist states as that which allows the capitalist market to flourish and that facilitates the development of these productive forces. Marx thinks that at some point there is a conflict between the productive forces and relations of production, and that conflict triggers the uh, transition to a new stage. And so it kind of makes... How much more time do I have? Uh, minus 30 Almost done? Okay, good. So that's all to say that basically <laughs> this uh, materialist theory of history that I've just tried to introduce now is basically saying that uh, philosophers... Why, why, did, why have philosophers... Why is it right to say the philosophers have always tried to change, to interpret the world, and the point is now to change it. Well, the idea is that because philosophy is part of this superstructure that is also fettered by the development of particular relations of production and by the crisis in which those relations of production happen to uh, arrive at one point, 
For philosophers, it makes more sense to join the struggle of those who are trying to replace and substitute this set of productive relations with an alternative one, rather than just keep producing theories that don't relate to the development in which these, um, to the history of development of productive forces. And I think I will leave it at that because I'm out of time, but you can ask questions. And, uh, and I don't want any questions about cheating. So who's got the first question about cheating? <laughs> Uh, okay, quiz. Oh, uh, yes. Hello again. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Is it about cheating? No. Okay. Phew. Um, they, I just wanted to clarify your view on philosophy sounds like it's very much of the objectivism strand rather than relativism. Mm -hmm. And I would completely disagree because I'm a relativist. True, and true. <laughs> um, and the How do you know that? history that they're writing within and so uh, for me if there's an ambiguity with it moving from objectivism to relativism and how you're saying that you have to become more relative as you, you know that the world becomes more material mm -hmm. that can't be the case it's always relative you're just your argument sounds like it's sort of ending up that it's more material than it was which is very marxist but with a with sort of a lack of Historical context in itself. <laughs> okay, so, um, rule, rule two. So basically, <laughs> well, Marx is an interesting case. Marx is definitely not a relativist, but he's also not a pure objectivist. In other words, he doesn't think that there is a transcendent truth that is always there from the dawn of humanity and that we can just kind of grasp that truth. He thinks truth develops historically. So I think the best way to make sense of that um, tension, in a way, in Marx is to think of truth as something that is progressively realized, in other words, a potential. And that's what Marx would say about truth, presumably. In other words, there is something like a human essence, which you, know, you might refer to by thinking about need satisfaction or about uh, what humans all share, where they come from in terms of evolution and so on. But then on the other hand, this human essence also develops historically. And in the course of developing historically, it creates new problems and it solves these new problems. And it's the gradual transition and the gradual process of solving these problems that allows you to kind of approximate this idea of truth as functional refinement of certain norms, right? But it's just that you ended up sounding like it was your argument. I wondered what you thought about. Well, so this is my interpretation of Marx. I mean, you can have, you, you know, Marxists uh, disagree as much as any other people about how you should read Marx, right? So Simon uh, Marxists really do disagree. Um, uh, let's have a, another Marxist. Christos. Yes. Okay, that's a good question, actually. So that is a good question. Marx. So, well, Christos, your first question was about orgasms. The second question about sexual fetishes. This is wonderful. Okay, uh, sorry, Lee. Go on. No, no. I mean, so there is. I don't know what you mean by sexual fetishes. I don't know what you mean by sexual fetishism. But uh, in terms of what Marx thought about the family and what Marx, how Marxists think about the family, the way the family is. Uh, is conceived and understood is actually as part of this general process of satisfying new human needs and so on, which is why um, Marxists, typically in the in 1968 and so on, with kind of revolution, weren't so obsessed with the family. And there were a lot of Marxists who were all kind of you know liberationists and you know, had no problem with having multiple families, living in communes and so on, because the idea is that the family is, some, is a structure 
that arises also to respond to the development of particular needs. And so if, there, if the nature of these needs changes and if society's way of production also changes, then there's no need to think about the family as this kind of mononuclear family that we're used to think about. You could have all kinds of different ways of thinking about family and the transition from one family to the other. Exit possibilities, mixing families, all kinds of really interesting scenarios. Open. Yeah. Okay. I think okay. there is a room for improvement. And at that point, <laughs> there is room for improvement in Markson on that. Okay, and we're going to stop that there, ladies and gentlemen. Leave me. And um, our next philosopher, I don't know. Uh, you need to sneak up here. Our next philosopher, I don't know whether she's going to talk about sexual fetishes or not. No. Um, please give a very, very round. A big round of applause uh, for the wonderful Emma McCabe. So I'm really annoyed because actually Lawrence talked about what I want to talk about and somebody told my muffin joke. <laughs> so I'm not happy. What I want to know is what makes us ask questions at all. The questions aren't out there in the world. The world isn't kind of making the questions in our heads. Something happens in our heads that make us ask the questions. And some of the things that Lawrence was saying about paradox might help us to understand that. We need to say something about the psychology or the internalism, if you like, of asking a question, what an interrogative is. Okay. One of the oldest philosophers that there is was Heraclitus of Ephesus. Heraclitus lived in the end of the 6th century BC, beginning of the 5th century BC, and he said, famously, you can't step into the same river twice. Yes, you bloody can. <laughs> so supposing you're walking peacefully on your way to the Agora and blasted Heraclitus, leaps out, he says, can't step into the same river twice, and you say... Just watch me, and you put your wellies on, and you go down to the, not the Thames, but whatever, it's near the Agora, can't think of an Athenian river, or an Ephesian river for that matter, um, and you say, look, and you leap into the river, and you get out, and you say, see, and Heraclitus annoyingly says, oh, you can't step into the same river twice, and you say, oh, hang on a minute, when you try and do it again. Wait a minute, wait a minute, actually, no, I can't. And then you say, this, Lawrence has already explained this, you've got a contradiction. You've said both you can step into the same river twice and you can't step into the same river twice. And it's really upsetting. Right? There's something horrible about that moment where you seem to yourself to be committed to a, to a contradiction. What that does is it makes you think about other stuff. So it make, in the case of the river, it makes you think about what it is for it to be the same river and what it is to be another river. I'm sorry, Sandy, that's a really boring philosopher talk. So what it does is it makes you think and it focuses what your thinking is about. Here's another old Greek philosopher. Zeno from Ilia, which is in the south of Italy. 
So Zeno, you know about him. You probably know about him because you probably know about Achilles and the tortoise. So the basic form of Zeno's argument was this. Well, stand at the beginning of a racetrack and look towards the end of the racetrack. But before you get to the end, get to halfway. And when you get to halfway, go halfway to the end from the halfway point. And then when you get there, go halfway to the end, and halfway, and halfway, and halfway, and keep on going halfway, because there's always going to be a halfway before the end, and you can't get there. Please don't make the mistake of saying, you will. That sum always adds up to one, because as Gilbert Rabb brilliantly pointed out, there's always a little bit left that you can't manage. Do you remember Beyond the... Fr- I'm sure you don't remember Beyond the Fringe. <laughs> Stupid question. There was a wonderful bit in Beyond the Fringe about life. It's rather like a sardine tea. There's always a little bit in the corner that you can't get out. <laughs> Zeno's paradox is like that. Danny was always late for school. And one day he comes to school late again. And the teacher says to him, Oh, God, Danny, why are you late again? And he says, Well, miss, I think it's my new way of walking. (laughs) And the teacher goes, So what new way way of walking is that, Danny? And he says, well, you see, I go one step forwards and two steps back. (laughs) And the teacher says, right, so how come you got here at all? And Danny said, ah, well, when I got halfway, I turned round and started to go home. (laughs) No? (laughs) You have to have thought about Zeno to find that funny. The first time I heard it, it made me fall about. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Because I've thought about Zeno for years. Now think about Zeno again. Now think about Danny again and worry about it, right? If somebody's got that way of walking, then it doesn't work. It makes you think about time and space and extension, and it makes you worry. And the worrying is represented by the laughing. Okay, so... Roaring with laughter, well, you didn't. (laughs) I'm really upset about that, because then I could have told you the muffin joke. (laughs) And it would have been all right, but somebody else told the muffin joke. That's not fair. (laughs) Okay, so the idea is that there are two things going on, not just one. It's not just that there's a contradiction. There's a psychological dimension to the contradiction, and there's a topic. So you can see how both paradox and jokes, jokes of the particularly philosophical kind, focus our attention on some particular topic, but they do it by making us ask questions. And questions don't come from the world, they come from something that's going on, some kind of worry that's going on within us. So think about 
how all of these kinds of worries that philosophers have are somehow or other theory-laden. So philosophers get attached to particular views of the world. So there's a famous... Think about knowledge. There's a famous limerick. I can't ever remember it properly, so I'm going to read it. So it's a limerick about idealism and Berkeley. So there was a young man who said, God must find it exceedingly odd to think that the tree should continue to be when there's no one about in the quad. Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad. And that's why the tree will continue to be since observed by yours faithfully, God. One day, two female ostriches <laughs> were walking down the street and they got themselves done up like a dog's dinner. They were on the raz. <laughs> so they had their handbags and their shoes and their hair was done on. And they're walking down the street together and they're admiring each other and one of them says, and the other one says, I know, and so do you. And they're walking on like this. And then suddenly, they pass a male ostrich. And they go, it's a bloke. And one of them says to the other, don't look. And the other one says, just go a little bit, keep walking. And the first one says, he's following and the second one says, walk faster. And the, thir- the, the first one says, he's following us. And the, the male ostrich is going, Wah. Wah. like this. And he's running after the female ostriches. And the female ostrich is getting really desperate. And one says to the other, what are we going to do? And the other one says, oh, look, there's some sand. Let's hide our heads. And the male ostrich says, where did they go? (laughs) Ostrich theory of knowledge. (laughs) No? (laughs) The ostrich theory of knowledge is that if you've got your head in the sand, you can't be seen. (laughs) All right, last one. This is my favourite one, and it's not mine. It belongs to somebody else, can't remember who. (laughs) (laughs) What do Winnie the Pooh and Alexander the Great have in common? Philosopher's joke. Is them a name? No. <laughs> the point about the jokes, I don't want to labour them. <laughs> the point about them is that they're funny because they're because 
they get to you. I hope that actually you're going to go away and worry about. At least, don't worry about the muffin. <laughs> but worry about the ostriches. And worry about Danny and the way to school, because you didn't get it right. <laughs> you should have got it. You should have got it. So think about Zeno, think about the tree in the quad, and then think about the jokes again, and see whether it makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> Thank you. Around the cave. With, with the, uh, the classic line that all stand-up comedians are familiar with, is that if you didn't laugh at the joke, that's your fault. Um, that, uh, another round of applause for Aaron McCabe. Absolutely. And then, very quickly, some questions. Anyone got questions? More jokes. Is M.M. a name? Is, is yes. M.M. It is. <laughs> well, that's that settled. Um, yes, uh, you had a question over there, sir. You've got a joke. All right, sorry, you had a joke. Do you know, uh, did you know Thales was a free Socratic? Yeah. He didn't. <laughs> that's very cool. Thank you. That's my, like that my favourite joke tonight. Has anyone, has anyone got any other questions? All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm McKay. Um, okay, we are almost there, um, and, uh, and we're only going to overrun by about five minutes. So, ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for your final philosopher of the evening? Yes, yes. yes come on, we need to muster some energy for one more philosopher, give me a yes. Yes, excellent, in which case, please welcome to the stage the very wonderful Dr. Gordon Finlayson. Thank you, Charlie. Um, I haven't got any jokes. He told me that this was called Philosophy Stand Up, No Joke. It's just about philosophy, but that's good because philosophy can't fall flat. I'm going to lighten the mood a little bit. I'm going to lighten the mood a little bit by talking about death and dying. Um, so, Epicurus. I'm glad MM's gone. She's an ancient philosopher. Not, not personally speaking, but I mean... That's what she does. Uh, she knows what I'm talking about better than I do. So uh, Epicurus was a Hellenist, uh, Lucretius was a, a Roman Stoic, and uh, they uh, come up with... Well, okay, they both believe, like a lot of ancient philosophers, right, that philosophy isn't doing any good if it doesn't help you live well or if it doesn't make you happy. Uh, Epicurus happened to believe that only pleasure... Right, or pleasure was the only intrinsic good and pain was the only intrinsic bad... Uh, and that happiness was about having the right mix of pleasure and pain um, and the right kind of pleasure. Um, and he also thought that philosophy, and this is a kind of interesting uh, thought for people like us, philosophy could actually help your life go better, right? So that philo philosophical theories can actually, uh, can actually change your life for the better. One of the bad things about life, he thought, one of, the most, uh, one of the things about which people show most fear and anxiety is death and dying. Uh, and he thought that that was because they hadn't sufficiently thought about it. And philosophy can help alleviate that fear 
And he did it by means of an argument. Now, of course, there are other philosophers, right, who said that death is nothing to be afraid of. Socrates famously welcomed death, you know, kind of uh, in the uh, apology if you've read it. But then Plato was writing his script and Plato believed in metempsychosis. Metempsychosis presupposes the immortality of the soul, right? So that's not really dying. In fact, it's not dying at all. Um, But Epicurus thought that was a load of crap, right? The doctrine of the soul, leaving the body, that's all crap, right? We are just uh, uh, entities, right? And we, although we're ensouled entities, when we die, that's it. We pass into non-existence. He was a materialist. And yet he thought that if we reflect on that fact, it can actually be of comfort. So this is what he says in his letter to Menesius. He says, and these are his words, Death, that is the mo- thought the most awful of evils, is nothing to us. Uh, seeing that when we exist, death is not present. And when death is present, we don't exist. And Lucretius, who's one of our most important sources on Epicurus, says in The Nature of Things, nothing can happen to the man who is not there. Uh, And, of course, it's the same applies to women. He didn't say that. but um, He probably used the word anthropos, right, which means both. Uh, It is just the same as if he had never been born when immortal death has taken his mortal life. So this is basically a version. So there is one gag in my talk, but I'm not giving it, right? I'm just talking about it, which isn't the same. It's basically a version of the old Woody Allen gag, right? Which is that I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And what Epicurus is saying is that don't worry, you won't be. (laughs) While you're alive, you have experiences, but you won't experience your death, right? A fortiori. And when you're dead, you won't experience anything, let alone your death. Either way, you won't experience your death. So your death is nothing to you. So you shouldn't be worried about it. Now, okay. The trouble with this argument... I mean, how many people believe... How many, how many people are now not afraid of death in previous years? <laughs> having heard that argument? Yeah, okay. Yeah. See, that's the problem with the ancient idea that philosophy helps your, your life go well. How many people suspect that that's a load of old bollocks and are still afraid of dying, right? And they were before... <laughs> Yeah, that, okay, so fortunately lots of philosophers also think that something that offends against common sense must be a load of old bollocks, and then they want to try and show why. So Aristotle typically, right, he defends common sense. And so what he would think is, but everyone's still afraid of dying, right? Uh, and Epicurus's brilliant argument notwithstanding, everyone can't be wrong. So we've got to work out what's wrong with Epicurus's argument. So here's one version of what's wrong with it. If you're dead... Right? You're being deprived of life. Deprived of life right? But life, even Epicurus admits, is good. It's both good in itself to be alive, right? other things being equal. Um, yeah, we're not talking about being tortured on a rack or anything like that. It's both good in itself to be alive, and being alive is a condition for all the other extrinsic and intrinsic goods that are available to you. You just can't experience them if you're dead. Right? So death deprives the dead person of the goods of life. Um, so that's why, and, and one of the common sense, one of the kind of common sense ideas that this theory captures is that it's much worse if a child who has all life before them or if uh, a young person in the prime of life right, gets cut down than if a very aged person who's had a really good innings um, uh, dies. Right? That's, that's kind of a part of our everyday thoughts. It's no comfort to anyone when they're at the end of their lives, right? But that's still nonetheless what people think, right? 
Okay, now I think Epicurus, however, wouldn't be persuaded by the deprivation account of death, right? Because I think that he would say, well, who is it, right? Who is it? Who is the person for whom death is a deprivation? It's either the alive person, right, or it's the dead person. But if it's the alive person, right, well, they can't experience death as a deprivation because they're still alive. It hasn't come to them, right? Well, it can't be the dead person either because they can't experience anything, let alone deprivation. So if it's not either the alive person or the dead person, death is still nothing to us, right? So I don't think that Epicurus would be very persuaded by the deprivation argument. But on the other hand, the common sense philosophers, they're not very persuaded by Epicurus's rejoinder. I mean, you could think of a certain... In a, in a way, it's kind of... It works too well, that argument. Now think of a, a kind of an illness that strikes you down and makes you become completely incontinent person who can't think, can't experience, can't use the word deprivation, uh, doesn't know pain and doesn't, and doesn't know the difference between that sort of pain and pleasure. Okay. Um, if you then say, okay, is that person being deprived of anything? Right? Is that disease, is it bad for them? Well, then presumably Epicurus would, you know, he'd have to say, no, not really, because there's no one there who can experience the deprivation as a deprivation, right? Who can think of that as bad. Um, so, there's a person over there who's going to love Epicurus's argument because that leads to a complete relativism about the good, right? Um, which most philosophers just think is, I'm sorry to say, crazy, right? Uh, so I'm just going to, I'm going to, f- I'm going to just so so. There's a kind of, in a way, um, Epicurus, if he pushes his argument, he seems to explain too much. I just want to finish on another thing that Lucretius says. Lucretius, who's a kind of commentator, um, he makes a very interesting comparison between prenatal non-existence and our attitudes towards it, and posthumous non-existence right, and our attitude towards that. Because he said life is a kind of span right, of existence, bounded in time at either end by non-existence. So how come our attitudes towards the non-existence at the beginning of our lives is not at all the same as our attitude um, towards the non-existence at the end of our lives? It should be, right? It should be, if our fear of death is rational. Right? If our fear of death is rational, we should all be regretting not have been born sooner so that we had more of life. Right? So that would, but, but we don't. We don't do that at all. So in that case, we shouldn't really be fear of... We, we shouldn't live in fear of kind of dying sooner. We should have the same attitude towards the one non, um, kind of non-existence, which is equanimity, as we do towards, towards the other. Now, there is something... Coming back to the common sense argument, there's something deeply wrong with that argument. There's something deeply wrong with it. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to leave you to work out what it is. Um, But I'm just going to say that, as a matter of fact, I think that other things being equal, we do have no reason at all um, to want to have been born earlier. But we all do have good reason not to want to die sooner. I figure out what's going on in both places. Um, uh, people have questions for Gordon Pinson. Gordon, I'm going to ask you, while, while I'm trying to figure out how to close that show, if you could, um, if you could take questions. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure. sure you can do that. Questions, so, jokes. Question, questions, jokes, generally, throw them at Gordon. Jokes about death. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> what is a mini mum? Pardon? What is a mini mum? <laughs> I don't know.
a very small model. Ah, yeah. Well, oh, you mean if we could live forever? Uh, no, if, if someone dies and then they can be cloned, redone, re-engineered. Well, that, I suppose that depends on whether it's you. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that takes you into the philosophy of mind and that kind of stuff. I don't do that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> you said that you fear of um, the bit before life. Yeah. So people don't think, oh, I wish I was born earlier. But there is some kind of obsession with wanting to be younger and a value in being younger, and maybe that's to do with that. Um, it, okay, it's possible that the uh, genuine anxiety to stay looking young has to do with the fear of death and right? getting older. I agree. Good point. <laughs> There's a 20th century uh, theologian called Adrian von Speer, and she's an Austrian. And she said death should actually be looked forward to because it's a means of your final means of salvation and communion. Yeah, you see, now that kind of bollocks is exactly what... <laughs> that's exactly what Epicurus hated, right? All this stuff, oh yeah, because it's not death, is it? If, it, if it's salvation, in fact, 
Anything salvific like that is fantastic. It's got to be better than, than what it's done here. In fact, even there must be some comfort, even with those people who think they're going to purgatory or hell, right? <laughs> At least they're not just going into complete non-existence, right? So, you know, that's what I talked about. Um, Epicurus thought that all that platonic stuff about metempsychosis is all bunkum, right? And all the Christian stuff about the soul surviving, that's all bunkum too, right? We're going to pass from a state of existence as a body in time, kind of material body, to non-existence, right? And he thought that if we reflect about that, that should help us and make our lives go well. That's why it's kind of a radical um, kind of uh, argument. That's why it's an interesting argument in a way, um, rather than all the kind of like you know, kind of metaphysical salvation stuff. So, any more questions? Yeah. Um, I just wonder whether you could differentiate or discuss the difference between the fear of death and the fear of dying. Yes. Uh, easy. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well. Uh, One's a noun, one's a present participle. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a grammatical distinction for you. But, no, no, it, it is quite important, right? Because, uh, well, the, the point, right, uh, which Epicurus uh, is making is going to be lost if we think of, as it were, dying as the run-up, the, the kind of long run-up to death, right, which may involve, and often does if the person is very old or very ill, terrible pain, right, uh, n- n- not much good at all. Right? Um, if you're being tortured, I can't even imagine what it's like, right? But that kind of stuff, he, see, he doesn't want to say that's not bad for the person. Of course, he agrees, he just says, yeah, 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 that is terrible for the person. But that's part of life, right? It's not death. So if you're afraid of dying from a terrible, you know, kind of disease which is going to give you kind of um, terrible pain, right, uh, in your later life, you have an absolutely rational belief, right? So what he's talking about, what we shouldn't be afraid of, is uh, dying as the kind of, the little threshold, right, when, between existence and non-existence, or the state of non-existence. It's that bit that he thinks we have no reason to be afraid of, right? And it's that that he says... When he says dying is not bad for the dead person, it's that kind of dying he means. Passing over the threshold into non-existence. And unless we kind of make that clear, I mean, you're right to do that, right? So you were wrong about the relativism, but you're completely right right about this. But unless you specify that that's what he's talking about, his argument doesn't make sense. So, you know, that's absolutely brilliant. Anyone? No, I think we all... I I think we've learned... Quite a lot. Uh, I've learned almost nothing about what Gordon said, but I'm sure... Has it been wonderful? Excellent. Round of applause for Gordon Stevenson. And let's have another big round of applause while you're clapping uh, for all the other uh, philosophers you've seen this, uh, this evening. You've seen Simon Glenning. You've seen Lars Goldstein. You've seen Christina Mussel. You've seen Liam Jean. You've seen Emma McCabe. Um, just so that you all know, and this is, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to plug uh, other Stand Up Philosophy uh, event, which is just an experiment which is running every first Tuesday of the month in the uh, Jeremy Bentham pub uh, in North London, where we have a, uh, like mostly comedians, to be honest, having a go at philosophy. Um, if you've been interested to see philosophers having a go at telling jokes this evening, you should see comedians trying philosophy. Um, it's fascinating. Um, in the meantime, my name is Charlie Duncan Safri. Thank you very, very much for coming. Um, we're going to hopefully do this again, perhaps with an interval in the middle. Um, and it, have you all enjoyed yourselves? Yeah. All right. In that case, thank you very much. One last round of applause for everyone. Good night.